This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Good morning, New Zealand. Welcome to another edition of Neville Rise Boundaries. And I'm Neville Wallace, broadcasting from Hara, coming to you from Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, and Arrow Radio Masterton. Today I only have three guests, Federated Farmers Provincial President and Dominion Federated Farmers Board Member Mark Hooper, Philip Duncan from weatherwatch.co.nz, and Barbara Kuriga, Taranaki King Country MP. So let's get the show on the road as I talk with Mark Hooper about the season ahead for farmers and farming. Farming is at an all-time low with lamb and meat prices having dropped 25% over the past year, plus milk prices dropped from $9.30 per kilo of milk solids to a forecast of $6.75, which is well below the level of production. With me to help people understand the predicament of the farming community is Federated Farmers Mark Hooper. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. Nice to be with you. Good. Bloody bleak Christmas is looming, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it is a little bit, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Mark, tell the listeners a little about yourself. I know you're a Leperton farmer. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, born, born and bred uh, Leperton uh, dairy farmer um, in North Taranaki. Uh, we've got family connections on the property that we're on going back to, to 1918. And um, so we're milking uh, 320 cows on a um, uh, little bit of Leperton Hill Country. Slightly challenging, so we, we run a um, run a, uh, a full season once a day um, system, which uh, seems to work reasonably well. Helps with uh, with staff and some of the challenges that there are around um, finding labour and um, and getting a bit of a work life balance. And uh, certainly for me, that's uh, that's one of the big challenges with um, a role for the last uh, last four and a half years or so. I've been um, president of uh, Taranaki Federated Farmers, and um, since July 2022, have been um, on the national board for Federated Farmers. Also, have a role with um, with LIC on the uh, the shareholder reference group. So it's another representation role within LIC. And so, a uh, couple of things there keep me keep me busy off off farm and uh, and on farm as well. well. I hope you've got good staff to fill your boots there, Mark. So, now, what's the farmers or fed farmers' attitude to he waka ekanoa? Is this an impossible project dream or whatever you would call it? Well, I guess uh, you know it's it's one of the one of the big issues that's uh, kind of dominated the. The uh, sector landscape, I, I guess, for the last uh, several years, and um, and it's far from resolved uh, as of yet. So, so it's an ongoing issue. You know, it's one of those things, I guess, that we would say has added to the the current um, kind of outlook. Um, obviously, as you mentioned in, in your intro, there, you know, there's a lot of downward pressure on commodity prices and what have you, and that's um, having playing havoc on uh, cash flow budgets and what have you at the moment. Um, uh, and you know, rising interest rates, rising costs, all, all adding to that um, problem. 
But if we look at our, our farm confidence surveys, which we run um, twice a year, um, by far the the biggest concern right at present, obviously, is that around debt, interest rates, banks, etc. But the, the second biggest one is around regulation and compliance costs. And the, the whole emissions pricing discussion plays very much into that because it creates a lot of uncertainty. Um, and it's a very complex subject, but, um, but the bottom line, I guess, the, in terms of the way most people see it, is that because the opportunities to mitigate against um, methane emissions um, are very limited, it's, it's a fairly direct uh, correlation between dry matter in, methane out, and so really the only options available are to reduce productivity if we were to achieve the government's kind of legislated um, reduction, methane reduction targets. And um, and so that is therefore then seen as just simply another cost of farming. It, it becomes basically a farming tax. If you've got no way to kind of mitigate against it, it just adds a, an additional cost to the operating structure. And um, and for for you know what in a lot of minds of a lot of farmers is uh, is very limited benefit. Um, you know we've been quite stable in terms of our methane emissions as a nation. In fact, they've been declining slowly over time. And we know with methane being a short-lived gas, um, it doesn't have to reduce to net zero to have no further warming impact. It only has to um, reduce gradually over time. And so farmers kind of feel that they're already doing their bit in that sense. And the prospect of adding a further tax. Um, is you know has has some quite negative implications for the sector. Now, when you talk about reducing our emissions, I think you've got a big four: Russia, China, India, USA. What are they doing? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's right, and, and it, that actually plays into the into the modelling um, calculations because because um, part of where the government has tried to pitch our methane reduction targets um, is around this this sort of global Paris Accord initiative of holding global warming to uh, you know. Only 1.5 degrees Celsius, and that's dependent on a whole lot of other nations um, also uh, having a similar target and working towards that. And clearly, that's that's really not the direction a lot of the world is going at this point in time. So it does call into question, you know, the the kind of punitive efforts that we might make here um, in comparison to what's happening around a lot of the rest of the world. So, again, that just raises uh, concerns in, in farmers' minds, you know, why are we adding this cost to our, our business? What, what advantage in terms of, um, of global emissions are we actually making? Um, and, yeah, it, it becomes a little bit uh, despondent if you look at it in that light. Now, carbon farming, productive land being covered in trees, and you've got a damn good article in the latest Farmers Weekly. Will this lead to a lowering of stock numbers? Is that what the government's aiming at? I guess there's there's a bit of an underlying agenda there, isn't there? We're, we're seeing um, challenges to livestock production systems coming from a number of different angles, and and these might be in the form of um, of pushback around uh, you know winter grazing, for example. Um, it might come around uh, pushback on non-replacement calves. 
Um, certainly, uh, live exports has been one that's been you know picked on quite a bit, and and generally, you know what what we see is that for a lot of the people that that are drive the kind of agenda behind some of these subjects, um, then they're not looking for improved performance. They're not looking for better animal welfare outcomes. Um, they're looking they're, they're opposed to animal production systems. And, and, you know, and I think when we look at where we are as a, as a nation at this point in time, where we're really struggling with, um, with our national debt loading, um, and confidence is low, productivity is, is, you know, low or declining. Um, I think, you know, we have to consider what, what's the backbone that, um, this country's been built on. It's been, it's been built on farming and, um, and a strong export market. Um, you know, 56.2 uh, billion in export revenue in the last uh, 12 months from the food and fiber, fiber economy. Uh, 82% of our total trade, um, you know, has come from, from that sector. It still is very much up there and we should be looking at ways that we can, we can be proactive and uh, support a growing uh, food and fibre economy, I think, and and a lot of the government policy, whether it's been favouring, um, you know, conversions to full farm forestry and this sort of thing, is is not really helping that that problem much. And and I think, you know, we've got to be positive about it. We've got to got to portray ourselves as being a sustainable, um, productive sector. And we have to be able to demonstrate that through increased growth and productivity, not only do we drive the economy, but that gives us the leverage and opportunity to invest in environmental projects and stuff as well. So we can, we, it's not one or the other, you know, we, we learn as we go along and, um, you've got to be, you've got to be black, I think, to be green. If you're in the red, you know, your options become very limited. And so I think it's the same with the nation as a whole. We've got to encourage investment. We've got to encourage uh, growth in our key sectors, food and fibre being one of those. And um, and that will ultimately help us to drive better, more sustainable environmental outcomes. Now, it reminds me of the Bill Clinton one-liner that got him nominated. It's the economy, stupid. Now, yeah, yeah. what about GM grasses? Is this practical? Why haven't we done that? Yeah, well, one of the um, one of the difficulties that, that we've got in terms of um, driving that um, productivity and investment that I was just talking about is um, we have a lot of a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape in New Zealand. It's it's probably most exemplified. Um, in the resource management processes and, um, and you know, the, the kind of uh, hoops and stuff and costs that you have to jump through in, also, in order to get resource consents for, for land use change and various activities and things these days. Um, and so, you know, that, that adds a lot of cost. And, and one of those other areas of, of red tape and bureaucracy is around um, uh, these environmental protection agencies, I guess, um, in terms of approving new products and new development. And so um, so that's, that's a bit of a, a barrier in itself. But, of course, part of the problem there is that we've had this historical um, discussion, conversation in New Zealand that's been anti-genetic um, modification. 
And and I think what we're seeing is that that table has um, has turned somewhat, and that surprisingly, um, we did a poll uh, earlier this year, and it was a relatively simple um, poll, and it asked the question um, whether the public supported kiwi farmers using uh, genetically edited grasses. And surprisingly, 72%, uh, this was a public scientific poll, not a poll of farmers, um, said yes. Um, there was 15% no, 13% unsure, but, um, but a very surprising outcome there. So I think the, the time for that conversation, people recognise that, uh, you know, we need to invest in new technologies. So the time for that conversation is ripe. It's, it's good to have it. But we do have to overcome the barrier of um, some of these bureaucracy and red tape processes that limit our ability to bring in some of these um, new and latest technologies. Now, I'd like your thoughts on firearms control, Mark, because I understand from my conversations with people all over the North Island, South Island, noxious animals are getting out of control. The firearms legislation is a bloody mess. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, there's there's no doubt about the um, the pest control um, issue. Um, uh, you know, from it's, it seems to be pretty pretty widespread, um, and you know whether it's throughout the the North Island and uh, and red deer and and the expansion of of fallow deer into areas that have not been seen before, but also particularly the uh, the wallaby population, um, Central South Island. Um, it's a bit concerned for farmers. It's a bit concerned because um, a lot of a lot of this um, the Expansion of of pest numbers is coming out of dock land, yep. and um, and dock have been you know unable really to to keep up with the responsibilities that they've got in that area, and so it does fall back further onto um, you know private landowners um, to to take up some of the some of the slack there, and and obviously firearms plays into that um, quite a bit, and I think yeah it it is a concern. Um, there is a, a little bit of a project um, running at the moment around um, goat culling and um, trying to encourage people to get out there and um, keep tallies. And um, I forget exactly how the project works now, but it's got a, got a little bit of backing behind it um, just to encourage people to to keep some tails and um, and record numbers and stuff and some prizes and, and things associated with that. But yeah, the the gun. Issue. So, so there's obviously the practical use there in terms of having what we would describe as the right tool for the job. And, and often, if you're talking fast-moving animals, large numbers, then it's pretty disappointing that it's, um, you know, access to to the semi-automatic um, hunting rifles is obviously off the table at present, unless you can go through a, um, a kind of commercial license type thing. <laughs> so that's problematic. But even, um, yeah, heading into the gun registry, obviously um, a lot of people are not not very impressed about that. Uh, it, it seems to be an example of the same sort of thing where it's going to be your, your honest 
um, law-abiding uh, firearms license holders who are going to register their guns. These are guns that are not of any threat. Um, there's no value in terms of having this national registry because um, there's no risk associated with those sort of guns, and it's the ones that are never going to be registered, uh, the risky ones. So we're adding a lot of cost uh, for what it seems pretty limited um, benefits. Mark, we've got a minute left. Would you like to make a comment about Blue September, and that's prostate cancer awareness? Yeah, well, I, I guess I I would. <laughs> Funny you should say that because I, I actually got a, uh, a text today from um, from the the medical centre that I'm a um, belong to, reminding me that um, I've got a blood test due, which I haven't taken for some time, and I I think I'm probably typical of a lot of um, guys out there, um, and I've put this off and put this off, and it's. Um, uh, you know, just something that we need to lift up the priority list. We need to be a little bit more proactive and, and um, just take uh, good care of ourselves going forward, especially at these times with these concerns and stresses just coming out of, um, out of our spring carving period, you know, adds a lot of extra pressure. It's time just to think of ourselves a little bit and make sure we're looking after one another. Well, thank you, Mark Hooper. A case well presented. Thank you, Mark. That's well, been good. Philip Duncan joins me to discuss the weather ahead and how the UV levels are getting higher and the need to be aware of melanoma. Up with Philip Duncan from WeatherWatch and learn more about our weather. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Neville. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Philip. The weather looks to be, I suppose I could use the term, flatlining because it looks to be much more of what we're getting at the moment and nobody will be complaining about that, will they? Well, no, not many in the West. Um, you know, Taranaki, Waikato, Auckland, Northland, the Western North Island, very happy with the sun coming back out and the rain uh, dropping down and getting a slightly drier than average weather pattern starting to emerge. And I think that's very welcome along the western side of New Zealand for now. Along the eastern side, it's a different story. Yeah. And in fact, it is quite remarkable that the places that were the worst uh, affected by the flooding earlier this year on the eastern side, so Gisborne and Hawke's Bay, they are the first places now to be saying how dry it is and that the grass isn't growing because the, um, one of the reporters at Farmers Weekly and uh, AgriHQ, Mel Crowd, who I absolutely love talking to, she lives over in Hawke's Bay, uh, southern part of Hawke's Bay, and she was saying that there's sort of a dry crust on the top now, and so they know it's wet, if you dig down, um, you know, a metre, yeah. but on the surface where the grass and the roots all are, it is getting very dry, and the grass just isn't growing back. And another part of that may also be from the exceptional rain earlier this year, washing away you know, nutrients and things like that. And so the, 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 the switch from mud to dry has also limited how much fertiliser can be put down as well. So it's a bit of a tough time for eastern New Zealand. And I think those in the west... Um, while, you know, we all like to help everybody, I think those in the West, like yourself and Taranaki, need to be aware that it could get very dry for you by the time summer rolls around. So spring may be lovely, but summer could be very dry. So it's just worth thinking about that with your extra feed that you might have and just being a little careful about where that might go this year. About the weather conditions for our competitors in the, what would you say, the European bloc, 
Well, they're coming out of summer now, so, um, and, you know, they've had a fair bit of rain, uh, quite a lot of extreme rain events across Europe. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I'd imagine now it'll start to calm down a bit, but the Atlantic Ocean is very stormy at the moment. That is normal. Uh, we're in the peak of the hurricane season. But the number of storms that are occurring offshore from America and then curving around off into the United Kingdom or Europe, you know, Spain, they've been seeing all sorts of big thundery downpours from leftover hurricanes. And so that pattern doesn't look to end anytime soon. But they are gradually sliding away from summer. We are gradually sliding into summer. And that means, you know, our days are getting longer by 20 minutes of extra sunlight every single week this month. In September, we gain 20 minutes a week. So that's a whole hour of more sunlight by the end of this month. And that, as well as the fact that, um, you know, we're, we're getting longer days and the sun's getting closer to us so we end up getting a higher uv rays and they are now moderate levels around the country that's you know early in the year we, we don't talk enough about this but here we are just a couple of weeks out of winter and our uv burn index is already moderate you know you can be in america and in the middle of summer and it's only moderate so that's just an indicator of how our uv rays are extreme in this country uh well they will be in a couple of months and right now they're already moderate which means you can get sunburned in a in within sort of 30 minutes to an hour of being outside yeah well melanoma awareness is with us all the time and i would urge farmers and you would too philip to cover up and uh Get a tractor that's got a cab on it if you can. That's right. Cover up. You know, I always say to people, I don't like suntan lotion myself. I hate it. And don't like the smell of it, don't like the feeling of it. So I just, I try and be very cautious and I just limit my time. Now that's different to a farmer who has to be outdoors. And so therefore you may need to use sunscreen. But I, and you should just think about something small. And I know, you know, not every man, it doesn't sound the blokiest, but you know, that you can get moisturizers that have UV in it and protection. So a little bit of moisturizer moisturizer on your face in the morning not only does good for any skin damage you've had when you were a kid and younger, and we all were there, we all got badly sunburned in our teenage years and 20s, um, moisturizer helps that, but also if you've got a UV protector in it, it then also protects you for the day ahead. So something that might sound a little bit, you know, quote unquote girly, but um, but it's a, it's a good thing, makes you a modern man. I appreciate all the uh, science that's gone into this for the simple reason, man, I was a sun worshipper in my teenage years, hunting days, very early 60s, man alive. Is it coming out on the skin now? Okay. Yeah, and my dad's the same. My dad's 80, you know, 82, and he's he's had a number of um, small, you know, little skin cancers burnt off his off his face and ears. Yeah. Um, none of them serious if you get them removed very quickly. Yes. But yeah, he's he was someone who played a lot of cricket, a lot of rugby, uh, spent a lot of time out in the garden, and and back in the you know in the day where suntan lotion wasn't really a thing, or if it was, it probably cooked you rather than actually protected you. Oh, yes. Well, Philip, I think we've done a good talk this morning about the effects of the weather on us and what weather to expect. We'll leave it at that, my good friend. Thank you, Neville. We'll Thank you very much. Next week. Thank you, Philip. Sounds good. Enjoy those spring gales. They are <laughs> probably setting in now. <laughs> now, here's Barbara Currier with news from a Gisborne community get-together where farmers came, collected donated fencing material, and news from Forest Range Station where some protected areas haven't been grazed for a hundred years. Good morning, Barbara. We missed you last week. 
what have you learnt while you've been around and out and about? Yeah, good morning, Neville. I think I've missed you for about three weeks, actually, because I was driving out to Carthia one morning when the rugby was on, and then I think you were away the next week, and then last week I was at out at Aria watching the rugby. So um, time goes pretty quickly. But, look, I've actually um, I've done quite a lot, and in that time, uh, one thing that was pretty exciting was um, going over to uh, Gisborne, flew into Gisborne and went out to a big function where the Rapid Relief Team uh, was running um, under the uh, planning of the Brethren Church, uh, had put on a massive big breakfast for farmers, a huge marquee, had all the banks, they had the fertiliser companies, they had rural support, they had anyone who could fill in forms and things for claims. Uh, while they were having this big breakfast, they all brought their utes along with their trailers, which were loaded up with fence posts and wire. Uh, so everyone went home with a trailer load of uh, fencing equipment, including the posts. And all day, we were seeing these trailers go everywhere. 400 farmers came in. It was just a well-organised event, and it's like... Good on you, people. You know, there was just a, um, you know, farmers and rural communities actually tend to get on together, and that was just a great thing to see. Um, I think the other thing that I saw this week um, that I think is worth bringing to the attention is often we look at, you know, some of the, the high country land and think, oh, we shouldn't have sheep on it. Well, I've seen some very good examples this week. Uh, went down to Forest Rain Station in central Otago, and I've seen some land that wasn't, uh, some people may have seen this on Country Calendar, hasn't had an animal on it for 100 years and it's oxidised and it's dead and nothing is happening to it. And even when you look at where some of those uh, merino sheep have been removed, um, the, the grass is dying. When you look at where the sheep are, there's a cover of grass. Um, obviously, it's being uh, manured by the sheep. It, um, it's not eroding. Um, and so, you know, ruminants graze the earth a long time before we were here, and I think we've got to be careful what we wish for uh, in some of these situations because, uh, you know, leaving it ungrazed, and there's no biodiversity in the soil where it hasn't been grazed. So there's a big lesson there. Um, I've also uh, had the opportunity to be in... Southland looking at wetlands because uh, there's a lot of pipe drains running through wetlands and fish and game are taking the opportunity to um, they've got a model where they look at the contour and they're able to uh, save some of the water uh, between the pipes, make a bit of a wetland plant some trees around it uh, and see that as a better opportunity than lowering animal numbers in Southland is to actually get a bit of um, you know wetland drainage going on bring back some bio diversity um, and um, you know that's there, there's some people are doing some awesome things out there at the moment but I can't go past mentioning the wilding pines that I've seen uh, last week in and around Queenstown before that um, I was up in Blenheim a couple of months ago and I'll tell you what if we don't get rid of those things soon they are going to be gone uh, just across the country, they are just going to spread and spread, and you can see them. There are little ones coming up absolutely everywhere. Um, there's a lot of talk about um, using genetic technology to uh, make a seedless uh, pine. A lot of contortors down there. There's different variations of trees that spread worse than others. Um, but even if we got one that was genetically engineered right now uh, that didn't throw seeds, 
we're still 25 years away from solving the problem. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things that's never, ever going to be cheaper than today. So, and beyond that, just want to put out a congratulations to um, Matthew and Jasmine Harrison, Primo Wireless, 15 years success in business, big celebration last night. Those people have connected up Taranaki. Um, they put Wi-Fi into all sorts of places at their own cost, helped the hospital, um, helped so many places get connected up. They're just absolutely pillars of society and absolutely great people. So, um, yeah, I've uh, had a fairly um, adventurous time and spent some time with the Kellogg Rural Leaders this week as well. So, um, yeah, it's all go. Oh, thank you, Barbara. Well, that's all I have time for today, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show, and I'll be back next week with more news from around New Zealand. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.